Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of the Fairly Lame Podcast. As always, my name is Dom and this is your home of good environmental news from all around the world. And before we get into the topics for episode 40, 42, I think we're up to, got to give you guys a quick reminder, head over to Instagram at fairlylame underscore and chuck your notifications on so you see every time we post. And you know, whenever Fairly Lame puts up a reel, you know it's good environmental news from all around the world. But these are the stories we'll be having a look at today. So for our first story, one of North America's largest marine no-take zones has proven that protecting marine life can coexist with thriving fishing industries to bolster biodiversity and food security. Then an autonomous underwater drone that can survey coral reefs, map the seabed and inspect offshore wind farms. And massive battery tankers could be here in just a few years, shipping renewable energy all across the ocean. Finland's legal commitment to be carbon neutral by 2035. Reteaching forgotten migratory routes to whooping cranes by dressing up as their mum and jumping in an ultralight. And finally, blackback woodpeckers thrive in freshly burnt forests and we'll have a look at how they promote tree regeneration and encourage other species to recolonize the landscape. But before we get into our first story, gotta let you know that for Ocean's June cause is the incredible green sea turtle. So I'm sure we've all heard the stories about turtles getting stuck in fishing nets and whatnot so not going into that but what I will say is that you can help them by picking up Four Oceans Green Sea Turtle Bracelet so they can keep cleaning the ocean and reach that 30 million pounds removed milestone. As always, link down below and make sure to check out their website for a heap of information about the species in general, but also the threats they're facing and use code fairly lame or one word for 20% off the entire site. As always, all their bracelets made out of 100% recycled plastic, which Four Ocean themselves have gone out and collected from the ocean. But anyway, into today's first story. The Revilla Gigedo National Park off the coast of Mexico provides another example of just how conservation can coexist with thriving fishing industries to bolster biodiversity and food security. Back in 2018, Mexico established the 150,000 square kilometer national park to safeguard the area's rich marine life, which includes species like whale sharks and manta rays, as well as to ensure the longevity of commercial fishing in the surrounding waters. The national park has the highest level of protection, which only allows for tourism, research and cultural use, all of which cannot include any extractive activities such as fishing or mining. And so marine protected areas are designed to be safe havens that allow species to flourish away from human pressure with the additional benefit of becoming source populations that replenish adjacent communities which can be accessed for commercial exploitation. But an argument against these zones is that by reducing the amount of sea available to be worked, fishing intensity may increase in the surrounding waters to compensate, having an overall negative impact on biodiversity and the nearby communities. And so a research team from the University of California, San Diego set out to investigate these points by looking at how successful the creation of the national park has been at alleviating fishing pressure and how it's impacted the local industry. Before the national park was formalized, Mexico's fishing body was projecting catch reductions of up to 20%. But by analyzing data from the country's fisheries department, as well as automatic identification and monitoring systems, the no-take zone was found to have had no negative impacts on fishery yield and there was no increase in area use. And if you're thinking, well, maybe that's because the national park didn't mean much, maybe boats were still going in, fishing in the marine park did in fact decline as only a handful of vessels were spotted in the area since 2017. And this isn't an outlier. After the creation of the largest no-tag zone in the world, which has a name that I've absolutely no chance of getting right, but it's northwest of Hawaii, if that helps, yellowfin tuna catches increased by over 50% in surrounding waters. And so we're going to be staying in the ocean for our next few stories. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at autonomous drones to monitor the ocean for illegal fishing and oil spills. So let me tell you about another one of these, but this time for monitoring under the sea. Hydrus is an autonomous underwater 
underwater drone that's being used to survey coral reefs, produce intricate maps of the seabed, and conduct meticulous inspections of offshore wind farms and aquaculture facilities. It's designed to be a more affordable alternative to large research vessels, which can cost millions of dollars when you consider the price of the boat, the submarines, and the crew required to run it all. The Hydrus itself is tiny, weighing in at less than 7 kilos, and as it's just 50 centimeters long, it can be easily transported and deployed by a single person on a small boat. And this small size has additional benefits as well, as it's able to maintain its positioning during turbulent conditions and has great maneuverability, whilst also featuring hubless propellers to prevent seaweed or fishing debris from getting tangled. On a single charge, the drone can be submerged for up to 3 hours, boasting an impressive maximum range of approximately 9 kilometers and the ability to descend to depths as low as 3 kilometers beneath the sea surface. And just like aerial drones, it can be deployed to follow a specific route, collecting data with a 4K camera and a variety of environmental sensors. And it also has artificial intelligence, allowing it to conduct species surveys or map the spread of harmful organisms and even has the potential to analyze image quality on the go and can update the mission plan to recapture a specific location if needed. And so if you've been around the Fairlane podcast for a minute now, you'd know we like to look at some emerging uh, technologies and whatnot in the conservation space and sustainability space. Um, and I'm not sure if this next one's a bridge too far. Let me know what you guys think. 460 foot battery tankers could soon be shipping renewable energy to developing countries or areas recovering from natural disasters and a prototype is less than two years away. So instead of moving around oil and coal, battery tankers could help developing countries access clean energy and even provide electricity to locations impacted by events such as earthquakes that can damage underwater power cables. And the company behind it, PowerX, have presented a couple different options to suit a variety of needs. Their largest boat would have a total capacity of two gigawatt hours, which is roughly the amount of energy produced by six million solar panels and is enough electricity to power 70,000 average US homes for a day. But it seems like the prototype model that we can expect in the next few years is a smaller vessel with a capacity of only around 240 megawatt hours. And so as these ships are fully electric themselves, beyond a certain point, the amount of electricity consumed by the boat to get to a location would outweigh what is being delivered. But what is this point? Well, it depends on the energy density and the cost of batteries. Currently, the threshold is projected to be around 175 and 300 kilometers, but we could see this rapidly increase as battery technology continues to improve. As just a couple weeks ago, we looked at the massive announcement from CATL regarding its new condensed matter battery, which would potentially power planes or cars for over 1,000 kilometers. And to nudge this out a little further, the full-size model will have solar canopies across its 140-meter deck to generate electricity during the voyage. But then to get the energy onto land and into the grid, specialized quick charging infrastructure is required, but the company suggested that this technology could be retrofitted into decommissioned coal-fired power plants. The biggest question that I have is about how long these ships would need to be operational for and how big the demand for such a service actually is in order for this to be more sustainable than existing options considering all the resources required to build all the batteries and whatnot. Let me know what you guys think down below. Or, or if you're listening audio only, let me know in uh, Instagram DMs. But moving on to something a bit more practical, Finland is now legally required to be carbon neutral by 2035 and if successful, they would be one of the first countries in the world to reach this amazing target. In recent years, Finland has been taking some great strides towards this goal, as back in 2021, renewables already made up 64% of the country's energy, largely due to the opening of Europe's largest nuclear reactor, which is capable of meeting 14% of the nation's electricity needs. And to make up the remaining 36%, wind power, both onshore and offshore, as well as solar, are expected to see the greatest increase in investment, but as Finland is Europe's most forested country, I do wonder if biofuels will get some of this spotlight. 
Wood is currently a primary source of heating for houses, but the government is already looking at ways to shift towards non-combustion alternatives like geothermal energy or even the recovery of waste heat, which is the unused heat generated by industrial processing or things like data centers. But overall, the International Energy Agency believes Finland is well-placed to reach its target and cement its status as a leader in the space. So now moving over to where my heart lies over some feel-good wildlife conservation stories, starting off by looking at one of my favorite behavior change programs. Operation Migration aimed to reach teach a 2,000 kilometer long migratory route to captive reared whooping cranes by dressing up as their mum and jumping in an ultralight. So for some context, back in the 1940s, whooping cranes were headed for extinction with only 21 known individuals in the entire world, meaning a successful breeding program was crucial for the survival of the species. And in order to be successful, it was crucial to prevent the baby birds from imprinting on humans, so the staff would dress up as cranes, wear crane hand puppets, and were even forbidden from speaking around them. Then to get them comfortable with the ultralight, they were exposed to the sound of the engine when they were still in their eggs, so when they hatched, they were familiar with the noise. When they were just 50 days old, they were already following the ultralight as it rolled around on the ground, and at 80 days, they were flying after it in the sky. Then, when it was time to make the journey from Wisconsin to Florida, the pilot, dressed as a crane of course, would fly the ultralight at around 25 kilometers an hour, and the young cranes would follow their mother. And in 2006, the first migratory whooping crane in over 100 years hatched in the US. And finally, our last story is looking at how, although it can be devastating, fire is a crucial event for a wide variety of plant and animal species. Blackback woodpeckers thrive in burnt landscapes and their presence helps the forest recover and encourages other species to return to the area. In California, these birds are one of the first animals to return after fire as they're able to feed on the beetles that infest dead trees and the burnt wood is perfect for drilling holes in. And their return to the landscape provides some amazing benefits to the ecosystem which encourages other species to recolonize. For example, as they create a new nest each year, other birds or even small mammals can move into their old ones and their feeding behavior eases the pressure on regenerating trees as they keep insect numbers in check whilst also helping spread their seeds. In forests which are set aside for timber harvesting, burnt trees may still be logged to recoup some of the economic losses caused by the fire but this can have a detrimental impact on the birds and therefore the broader ecosystem. So to address this, a new tool has been developed to predict and map where blackback woodpeckers are most likely to occur to better inform the post-fire management of forests. The technology incorporates something called pyrodiversity which is pretty much the variation of burn severity throughout an area, whilst also considering how the specific ecosystem typically responds to fire with this information then combined with the known behaviour of the birds. The woodpeckers are known to prefer a landscape that has more variation, as the adults often build their nests on the edges of severely burnt patches where they forage, but their offspring will spend most of their time in less impacted habitat. So that will do us for episode 42 of the Fairly Lame podcast. As always, make sure to head over to Instagram at fairlylame underscore to catch my daily news show, five days a week, where we look at stories completely different to what we cover on here as well as for visuals uh, that go along with these stories as well. If you want to see a nice, cute, black-backed uh, woodpecker drilling into a tree, any of that kind of stuff, or even the crane stuff too, highly recommend. Uh, but yeah, hope you enjoyed. Let me know your thoughts down below, and we'll see you guys next week. See ya.